This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. And this is episode 138. I'm Ellie, Olive's editorial assistant and podcast host for this week. Later on in the podcast, I chat to cookery and digital assistant Amanda about the pie feature in the February issue and why everyone needs to try that butter chicken pie with naan bread crust. But first, I went to meet Ed and Robin, founders of Square Root Soda, to talk about starting a business from their kitchen, how to find fruit suppliers through lonely heart ads, and why watermelon soda will never be a thing. Hello, and I'm here with Ed and Robin today, founders of Square Root Soda, and we're in their Hackney office come production centre come everything, really. And um, yes, we're upstairs, but downstairs at the moment, they are bottling, well, we've just tried the latest Seville marmalade, and they are packaging that all up, ready to go, and it smells incredible, I have to say. Um, so Square Root started in 2012 from Edinburgh. Robin's Kitchen, and they were selling sodas at Harringley Farmers Market. But seven years later, they're now stocking restaurants across the country, offering sodas and non-alcoholic bottled cocktail alternatives. So from the first market, where did Square Root go next? Uh, well, it basically came to here. <laughs> uh, this is the, the place that we moved out from our kitchen too and we've been here ever since basically okay so uh we found this place i think it was on ed's cycle route from our house to his work and then one day he just spotted it with uh without a front on it and he was like oh <laughs> the people have moved out it's being renovated we have to call the landlords <gasps> we can get in there yeah so that's basically how we found our first production space and then uh as we've grown we've just sort of stuck little bits onto it and like built up a little bit and out a little bit and nice stuck it all together and so from the when you started doing the markets that was just uh did you just have a small little stall at the market yeah, exactly. We we started out sort of just playing around with different things. We didn't just make drinks. We were making all sorts of stuff like cakes, a little bit of like craft stuff. It was all really seasonally focused. But um, there's already a lot of people doing that at market. So it was the the keg of homemade ginger beer on the table that was the thing that people were actually coming to us to buy. Okay. So it sort of led us to to playing around with other flavors and uh, experimenting with the drinks more and then everything else sort of fell by the wayside and what was like a table full of lots of different stuff and a keg of ginger beer became a table covered with four different kegs <laughs> of four different flavors. Amazing. And it sort of escalated up from there. And then how did you go from doing market stall to like supplying big restaurants and like the shops that you do now? So I think when, when we started... Uh, we, we, we were also still working in, in the beer industry at the same time. So Robin was working in a bar and I was working at a brewery. And I guess um, as soon as we realized there was the opportunity, we used some of the expertise from those kind of places to sort of see, you know, obviously there's a market for the drinks. And then I was making beer during the day. And, you know, we sort of thought, well, maybe some of these processes could be 
used to, to like make the bottles. Yeah. Um, and we asked around and Five Points Brewery lent us their bottling line at the weekend. Pressure drop sorted us out with some storage space. Oh, and babes. We, we called all, yeah, it was super cool. Um, uh, you know, we just called some friends in and, you know, we spent like a very uh, long, arduous weekend. <laughs> you know, I think we worked until about midnight on both of the nights to actually get it finished. It was a lot slower than it is now. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the now they're... Well, piling out, aren't they? <laughs> we're churning them out. Um, no, I mean, we, it, we, it was, it was, it was like the same thing, but we just didn't really know what we were doing. Yeah, they were the same flavors that we were selling on the market store, but just we spent the weekend putting them in bottles, and then after we'd done that, just taking them around the corner to different places, being like, "Hey, <laughs> you do you want some soda?" <laughs> Hi, we've got these. It was E five and the Cock Tavern were the first stockists. Okay, that's the Cock Tavern on Mare Street. That's where I used to work. Yeah, uh, so was, that was a. <laughs> That was an easy one. Get in there. Um, but E5 were amazing. They were like, yeah, we totally want this. Let's let's go for it. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was it. The problem is once we started making them, people started buying them. And then we mm. had to basically actually start making them for real. So is that at the point you kind of had to give up your other jobs to focus on it? Or were you still working as a brewer at the same time as doing that? No. We... I'd already given up my job by this point. Mm. Yeah, so Robin quit first. Yeah. Uh, I quit once and then got another job. And then I had to quit again, um, <laughs> which is a bit silly, but it's the way it is. Um, but yeah, we, we, we ordered the kit. We got the, the, we got the lease on the place. And, you know, we just got started. It, it was quite crazy yeah. to, to just do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we knew what we wanted to do. We didn't necessarily know what we were doing. Yeah. But we, we knew enough. So both of your backgrounds are in science. And obviously, like you said, Ed, you were a brewer. How did that help you? Because it's not like you're just, it's not like I'm just saying, oh, I'd want to make a soda. You know the technical stuff behind that. Did that help a lot? Uh, I think it definitely helped with the, the knowing what to do to make the drinks and how to, to scale it up to a drink in bottle that was definitely safe for people to drink. Yeah. That's the main fear, right? Yeah. You don't um, want to kill anyone. And like develop, and because we're both from like quite a rigorous lab background, sort of knowing how to set processes up and do things in a, a regimented way that means that you can replicate the same drink over and over again. That was really helpful. Everything else, absolutely not. It doesn't, <laughs> it like, doesn't help you set up a business. It didn't help us figure out how we were going to sell it. We... When we first started, it sort of started out on a shoestring budget. And we, after we'd opened this place, it was just me and Ed sitting in an empty room. <laughs> and we were like, wow, now, now we have to make some drinks. <laughs> and we did that, but we had just enough money left to make a pallet of drinks. And then wow. we were like, oh, now we're going to have to sell these <laughs> Now drinks. we need to make money. <laughs> uh, so we had to sell that first pallet and then use the money that we got from selling that to then make more pallets and then just grow it up from that. So Slowly expand. Yeah, there's definitely some more forethought could have gone into <laughs> doing that. We've never done it before, though. Yeah. You know, we'd never we'd never run a business of that sort of scale or, or, you know, had to pay rent on a commercial space before. So, you know, the first year was like a big learning curve. Like, and when, when we got the labeling machine, that was a big step up. You were labeling all the bottles. Oh, yeah. Hand. Originally, I was just like sitting on a bench, hand labeling <laughs> everything. And my wrists at the end of a day would be like, swollen to three times their oh. normal size that was my favorite purchase to date and still is yeah. a labeling machine yeah we've, we've moved on a bit since <laughs> things have grown yeah. um and so the the sodas themselves are so pure they literally are just 
basically fruit, water, and a little sugar, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so that is quite unusual. It's lovely, but it's unusual to <laughs> other sodas that you buy. Um, where do you source all your fruit from? Do you work with small farmers? Do you do you how do you find these people? <laughs> Uh, exactly. So basically, when we first started, we were going to New Spitalfields Market, which is a big fruit and veg wholesale market just down the road from here. And uh, it's literally from buying fruit from there and then spotting a sticker on a box and seeing like, oh, that's the name of the grower that grew this. We should contact that person and then trying to build up a, connections that way to source the fruit. Wow. Uh, Ed would love to tell you how we found our <laughs> citrus farmers who are his new best friends. <laughs> Can't wait. Well, we've been dealing with these guys for a while. It's Carmelo and Carmelo over in uh, Sicily. If they're listening, little uh, shout out to them. <laughs> I, I posted um I posted a Lonely Hearts ad on a on a on like a citrus website, basically. <laughs> a there's a messaging board for citrus. Who um, who knew? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot on the internet if you look deeply enough. And I just I basically was like, you know, I'm looking for oranges and lemons. You know, anyone in Sicily, have you got any? Maybe it was like yeah, get in touch. Drop us yeah. a line. I heard nothing for two years. <laughs> wow. And then Rejection. out of the blue, yeah, but out of the blue, we just kind of got this message being like, yeah, we'd, you know, do you still want it? Yeah. <laughs> Are yeah. you still lonely? <laughs> yeah, please. Like, you know, and, and so they, they dropped us a line. Um, they were like, send us two grand. We were like, okay. Um, so we just sent some money off into the abyss and actually, a, you know, a couple of pallets of fruit like appeared a week wow. later and we were like, oh, okay, this is going to work this out This is fine. legitimate. Well, it, it was amazing. I mean, I think that was the moment when we took a step up because then we've we've got some amazing connections in Sicily now. Um, they, they almost um, work as our agents to find interesting fruits or like to, to up the quality of what we're buying. So they oh. themselves... They grow the blood oranges that we buy, but they they also source all of our lemons. They source our bergamots. They source our mandarin oranges. Wow! And they're always every year looking to like step up. And I I guess they almost want to show how good Italian fruit is. So they're always looking for the best that they can yeah, send us, which is really amazing. But uh, that that's that's been a really great connection. You know, mm. we talk on WhatsApp daily. Basically, yeah. you know, was... little uh, little messages <laughs> in the pallets of fruit they send. They like write things on a piece of paper and hide it in a box for us to find. Oh, we get also it's it's That's you know amazing. it's like any long distance relationship. Yeah, you just you know, got to make it work. It. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah, it's funny. Um, so obviously there are you do a lot of seasonal flavors, and you've done apple, raspberry, citrus crush, blackcurrant, like Seville marmalade that we just tried, which is like drinking marmalade in a bottle it is amazing um and blood orange obviously these are all flavors that taste great have you ever experimented with any flavors and you've just gone yeah maybe not mm. over to robin <laughs> <laughs> so my dream soda that i would love to make is watermelon okay i feel like that's like the summer that you want to experience in a bottle um, and we do a lot of events still. So we're still going out with Curb, who is the street food people that we were originally trading with. So we do a, a really kick-ass watermelon soda on draft at events. And uh, from a weekend doing that, I was like, oh, watermelon, it should be our July flavor. It's going to be like, it's going to be the best. It's going to be so great. And uh, Ed then went about trying to find a large quantity of watermelons for us. Mm. And it just so happened that we we did an event with Curb and we had a few, not too many watermelons left over. And I was like, oh, maybe we'll just do a quick test batch to make sure this is going to be okay. And I mean, I swear, if we hadn't 
done this. No. <laughs> we would have just done a full batch and this would have happened to way more bottles than it did. But we, uh, so we just ran a little batch through our bottling machine, bottling it up. We, uh, we pasteurize our sodas, which is a heat treatment to preserve them. So we pop the bottles in the pasteurizer. We were keenly waiting for the time it takes them to come out and getting them ready to cool down and, uh, and pop them over and drink them. And uh, when I pulled them out the pasteurizer, the drink had entirely lost its color. So it was a clear drink. And then it had chunky, not, not like red watermelon anymore. It was like orange, like pumpkin, <laughs> chunky bits that had entirely sunk to the bottom. And then I was like, oh, this is weird. But look, you shake it up and it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's totally, it's gonna be fine. And then we opened it and the smell of rotting pumpkins that came out of that oh, drink. No. no. What is like, do you know, do you know enough about the science to know what went wrong? So we've we've since learned that it's a it's just a really delicate fruit. Right. It doesn't deal with being heated up very well, and it's just one of those fruits that you just have to eat it as yeah. it is, basically. Yeah. Wow. Unfortunately. So no one will be having watermelon soda anytime soon, unless you come to one of our unless, events. Then we yeah. treat you to it, and then you can. <laughs> but, but no, that was a huge disaster. So, like you were saying there, you um. You pasteurize and heat the bottles. Yeah. So what is, what's the science and the process behind, you've got some fruit and you've got some sugar and you've got some water. How does it then get from that to the bottle? So the, the run up to putting it in the bottle is we basically just want to get the most out of that fruit that we possibly can. We're buying some of the, the best fruit that you can get in this country. So every process is different for every drink. It's always designed to to get the best out of that fruit. Um, and because of that, it's just literally, most of the drinks are that fruit, a bit of lemon juice to balance the flavor out, water, and a little bit of sugar. So I guess the easiest one for me to talk you through would be the lemonade. Yeah. Because that's just three things. Um, so our, our lemons arrive from Sicily. They then go immediately into our production space and they get rinded by hand by us because wow. uh, they're completely untreated, no chemical sprays or anything like that. So we can use everything. Okay. And the rind has this incredible flavor and smell. So we then, we put that in a sugar syrup to extract that. In the meantime, the rinded lemons are now all being juiced. Those two things are combined together and diluted to the right amount of liquid. Uh, and then that's it. And then that's that's yeah. your drink it gets chilled overnight so it's super cold when we bottle it and then uh the next day someone comes in and starts the bottling lineup and everyone jumps on wow i feel like you've made that sound a lot more simple than it actually, <laughs> than it actually is i feel I mean, like don't get me wrong. we have to do rind like yeah several hundred lemons to yeah. get all the rind we need and then we have to juice about at the moment our batch size we're probably doing about 72 liters of lemon juice a day wow so that's so, a lot of manual it takes effort time. that goes into that yeah Amazing. But it is an easy process. And do you think, Ed, your background in brewing, do you think that helped when it came to it? I mean, put it this way. Uh, we're terrible at making cocktails because we're not used to working on small scale. But when okay. it comes to thinking about stuff in terms of batches of a thousand litres, mm. that's where our thinking is. Yeah. I mean, you know, you get used to working with certain processes, you know, how uh, carbonation works, how isobaric counter pressure or like bottle filling stuff yeah. and you know <laughs> in simple words, terms <laughs> you know I, all, all, all of the all of the technical side 
how to how to run the kind of the production side. That's what we took from brewing. Mm. We obviously do quite a lot of collaborations with 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 microbreweries and with other craft breweries, and and that's quite fun because we we often we'll, we'll go to we're actually brewing on Monday. We go as a team to brew a beer. Oh, nice. And then we'll take the beer and we'll co-release it as a shandy as well. Oh, so then yes. we're, we, we do like a two-way collab. So, you know, their team comes to us and then we make a blend of the beer. So I, I, I think a lot of the processes are similar, mm. but a lot of what we're doing is working with fresh fruit, whereas with brewing, you're developing flavor through the fermentation of, uh, you know, you're, you're generating flavors that weren't there. We're yeah. trying to capture flavors that are in fresh things. And keep it there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned just then cocktails mm. and this year... Um, you released your the non-alcoholic cocktails so gin and tonic uh margarita and there was negroni as well what what made you what made you do that <laughs> uh so i actually don't drink alcohol anymore mm. um and i guess the main driving force behind it is uh i was missing a lot of the flavors that you get in uh in really nice cocktails when you when you go to a bar and you don't drink often your your options are just I mean, hopefully it's one of our sodas. That yeah. would be the ideal situation. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's a lot of that, a lot of fizzy drinks, a lot of non-alcoholic beers are coming out now. But there, there still isn't really anything that satisfies the craving for a, like a just a really nice, bitter, complicated tasting drink. So, uh, yeah, we basically started working on one. How, how long were you kind of working on that process for before it? came to life so the the non-alcoholic gin and tonic which is the the one that has now become a permanent part of our mm. range that one took the longest to develop and then from the learning we did with that we then developed the other two uh but that one we were working for for about 13 months before wow. we released it as a, a fully a full product. product yeah and what what was the process like did you did you try a lot of i'm guessing you tried a lot of products that then didn't didn't end up working but like how did you get from being like right we want to make a non-alcoholic gin and tonic to then having one so the the tonic part was quite easy mm. because we were already making tonic waters so we kind of had that part of the drink down the challenging part was replicating the the flavor of gin yeah without using any alcohol because <laughs> mm. alcohol is really good at extracting flavor from botanicals which is why gin is really nice because it's it's yeah full of the botanical flavors that people want to get out of spices uh, the learning for us was trying to replicate doing that, but only using water and steam. Wow. So using heat to extract it. Uh, and it turns out you have to use a lot more of everything <laughs> than you would if you were just making a gin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just loads and loads of repetition in, uh, in trying different combinations of spices, different amounts. Yeah. And then uh, just trying to figure out how to get the really key flavor, which is juniper, mm. into the drink so that when you drink the tonic water and the the gin flavoring together it, it tastes, it tastes exactly just like a non-alcoholic yeah. tonic well yeah. i can vouch i've tried all of the non-alcoholic <laughs> ones and they are very convincing so yeah i would recommend them um so finally are there any, is there anything any flavors that you're working on at the moment that we can look out for soon or any new products so ed was already mentioning the collab that we are mm. starting on monday i think we can tell you what that is <laughs> <laughs> a little exclusive uh, so we're gonna be collabing with orbit brewery who are down in Dang. south london uh we're making a an, a bergamot iced tea pale ale wow yeah i'm excited for it it's gonna be fun oh I that think, sounds amazing 
Um, and then we're going to be taking that beer and then making an iced tea shandy. That sounds so. perfect for the summer. Yeah. I'm looking forward to trying that. Well, thank you so much, Ed and Robin. That is great. And if you want to buy Square Root Sodas, you can go online yeah. and to lots of shops across London and the country, really, and in a lot of bars and restaurants and they're serving them. So, yeah, go and grab yourself a bottle. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Hello, and I'm here today with digital and cookery assistant Amanda, and we're going to be chatting about the pie feature from the February issue. Hello. So we all know February is a month for hunkering down and keeping cosy, and Sarah Cook has written six incredibly comforting recipes for you to try this month. So I'm going to talk you through just a few of them now. We are. So I think we should start with the cover recipe, which yeah. is that mushy pea fish pie. Beauty. It is looks stunning and it kind of takes the classic fish pie to a next level um just by adding mushy peas and it gives it that retro feel yeah. doesn't it it's kind of an all-in-one encompassing kind of fish pie fish dinner type yeah thing. it is um but it's also quite an easy pie to make isn't it yeah it's quite it's not it's not too hard to make that's why we've used kind of uh ready-made puff pastry and the tinned kind of peas that you can buy in the supermarket just because obviously if you made everything from scratch it would take you a whole night just to make this pie not that I'm saying it wasn't worth it but <laughs> uh, yeah exactly it's quite a it looks impressive yes. so we're going to talk about the the effect on it but it looks impressive but equally it could be quite an easy midweek meal definitely just knock up yeah you can obviously buy um we used in this recipe she uses like skinless salmon fillets and cod fillets and things like that you can obviously in supermarkets buy uh, fish pie kind of mixes exactly yes. which can sometimes be a bit more cost effective or easy way to use it and um when it comes to the actual making of the pie again it's quite simple of a kind of um putting all the kind of uh, ingredients together and then cooking it down and putting it in the pie and leveling out with the mushy peas and then the um lovely kind of effect of the fish scale on top yeah so I think so as Amanda said it's just puff pastry but I think what makes it look so effective is that scale effect yeah and so how's that done is that done just by cutting out cutting out through pastry literally yeah so um you can obviously make your own uh, puff pastry and we've got recipes online for that but we've used ready-made here and it's literally a case of rolling it out into kind of the same kind of uh, shape size of your dish and using like a four to five centimeter um cutter and to about one pound coin thickness and when you create the circles it's just basically a job of overlapping okay so you just layer them on top yeah, of each other really. so, and making sure that um when you cooked all the ingredients uh, within the pie that is cooled and everything because you don't want it to start melting on top because it's obviously a butter pastry that we've used oh uh, yes yeah, so you have to let that cool before adding the pastry yeah and um something else that's quite important is to try not to re-roll the pastry because when it cooks you want it to have an even rise and if you keep re-rolling it and it's been as well as it being out and if it's the room's gets quite hot it won't have a nice e even rise between it right so that, and does that mean it won't puff up quite as effectively no it won't have that kind of impressive look that it's got right um but it, even if like you buy more pastry than you need you can easily freeze 
pastry. Yes. So it's best you don't don't need to waste it really. There are some good tips there. <laughs> um so next, I think the the most inspired pie is this butter chicken pie with a naan crust. And mm. I think that's the one that when it came out of the test kitchen in the office, we were all wowed by it and we were all thinking, why have we not tried this before? And so can you just talk us through that? Because um yeah, it's quite unusual, I think. Yeah, I mean I haven't actually made it myself, but I tasted it myself and it's yeah like we all did and it's delicious but um basically the recipe as it was they're all quite uh pies that have just the top yes element to so it. it's not it's um not. yeah we should explain that they don't have any bottom pastry yes really <laughs> yes and that again makes it a lot easier too um and with the crust it's basically like as ellie said it's a naan it's a homemade naan that we've used to then kind of wrap around the edging and with the naan, we've used um, yogurt, like you do in quite a lot of naans, to give it that kind of soft and fluffy mm. element to it. And um, yeah, it's pretty simple. We've used nigella seeds in it to kind of give it that kind of, lots of curries have nigella seeds and things in it for extra seasoning. I think it's quite a good alternative to a takeaway almost. Yes. And the idea is that instead of making a, because you're making the naan breads yourself, instead of making one big pie, you could make individual pies, yes. which is quite a nice, um, nice idea. It just makes it a bit more, um, a bit more fun really. Yeah. And naans are so quick and easy to make like a lot of flatbreads are. Yeah. It's not like you have to do like a lot of rising, proving overnight situation. You can make it together uh, with just the yeast, the yogurt, the water and whatnot, whatever the recipe says. And then it's a case of just letting it rise for usually half an hour is usually often enough and then knocking it back. And then because it's quite, the, you could either do a miniature like we said or just mm. the top pie of this one. You never need it to be too long yeah and so. I think that's a good point because I think if you're if you think oh I'm gonna have to make naan breads that might Sounds, overwhelm a few yeah. people but actually um yeah it's kind of just like a flatbread mixture which yeah. is so easy and quick to make I know it's like a dreamy pie I don't know why we haven't I haven't seen it before. why is this not a thing you heard it here first <laughs> yeah. so, um, like everyone wants naan bread with their curry don't it's they? just like an all-in like we said with the fish pie it's like an all-in-one meal yeah which is great I know it's delicious um so finally I think we should talk about the rum roasted pineapple and spice pie um and this is great for everyone because it's actually vegan so um which is not not often what you get in pastry because no. you just think of all that butter yeah exactly um can you just talk us through the ingredients we use to make it vegan yes well first of all it's probably quite good to make a point that often actually pastry is vegan unless oh um it's an all butter like the fish pie was an all butter puff pastry and unless depending on the supermarket or the brand or whatever often it is oh it actually vegan. is vegan but ah. <laughs> this one uh Sarah's actually made a creative recipe herself and she's used like quite a lot of uh, ingredients that are used in vegan cooking like coconut oil, dairy-free spread, chai seeds, that kind of thing. And in the recipe for the pastry, as in with baking, chai seeds firstly ask, uh, um, act as like a binding agent. Okay. Do like, you have to soak those? Yeah, you oh. soak them and you like you do them, but when you bake cakes, vegan cakes and things, it acts as like the egg kind of element. Right, I didn't know that. Which is um, a good thing to know. And then the dairy-free spread is acting as like the fat element to help, again, combine that pastry mm. to make sure it doesn't crumble. Um, and the coconut oil acts as the kind of contributing kind of... Like the oil element yeah, that you'd have, exactly. And so, how does that how does that work? Because coconut oil, I know that when it's at room temperature, it's a liquid, but then it actually sets. Doesn't yeah. So it? when you're letting your pastry um, go cold in the fridge or whatever, it helps harden it. Because oh. a lot of things that help 
go wrong with not go wrong but sometimes they're the hardest thing to kind of master with vegan baking in all its elements is okay making sure it doesn't crumble yes yeah and so like things like chia seeds and coconut oil and making sure you have it at certain temperatures are just quite important when it comes to like creating pastry that's vegan from scratch and things like that and making it work i think the really um really good thing about the rum roasted pineapple pie is that with quite a lot of these well we've got another one which is the mucky mouth slab pie and that's got quite an intricate design on top it's stunning it is beautiful but the good thing about the um the pineapple pie is that the way that we've done the topping is just kind of like triangles and like that are all overlapping so it does mean that even if the pastry was a bit crumbly it almost doesn't matter no. because that's the effect. It's meant that to look a bit rustic. Anyway. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's just, they've all got their individual kind of style anyway, haven't they? Exactly, they do. Yeah. And like with the mushy pea pie, like it's really got that lovely golden crisp, which yeah. comes from egg when you egg wash things. Exactly. Often. So I think with the rum one, you've just got to know that obviously you're not you're not necessarily going to get that glossy effect from no, the egg yolk no. because there is an egg, but <laughs> it's such a great pie and it's so um, so generously spiced as yeah, well. exactly. So. It's got all those other elements and it's got a lovely bit of rum in there. It's yeah. delicious. Got a boozy kick. <laughs> well, thank you, Amanda. And if you want to try these recipes yourself, you can pick up a copy of the February issue, you which can. is out now, or head to olivemagazine.com where we've got all these pies and many more to try. We do, yeah. Make sure you head over. Thank you. So that was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you liked this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to find out more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our new February issue on the newsstand now or go and download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat. Thank you.